I'm excited about, uh, honestly, I'm excited about preaching anytime, uh, to be quite honest. So that I get up and say I'm excited about a passage is probably, uh, but not so meaningful. But this passage in particular, I'm really excited about this chapter. In fact, I want you to feel my, uh, the frustration I've had to deal with over the last couple of weeks. So uh, the beginning of January, I was ready to preach this chapter. I was excited about it, ready to go. And then I looked at that first passage on marriage and divorce, and that's when I backed up and said, well, maybe it would be better if we take a, a week and deal with this topic. Uh, so we, that's what we did. That We took that small passage, those first 12 verses, and then we marched across the Scriptures and looked at that topic together last time. Knowing all the time that in two weeks I get to preach the whole chapter. And then the snowstorm hit. And I had to wait two more weeks to preach this after. So had something happened where we couldn't get out of the house this morning and I was going to be able to preach this, I was going to have to go Puritan on my kids and sit them down and be like, alright, here it is. So um, they're thankful that that did not happen. Instead, you get to be get to endure it. So anyway, Mark chapter 10. God willing, we will cover all 52 verses together this morning. Let me begin by going to the Lord and asking for help. Father, we come to You um, and we come asking that You would help us. But Father, we do not want to look past the incredible mercies that are represented just in the fact that we are gathered. It's an extraordinary thing. We're gathered around Your written Word. It's given over to us. We have it in a format we can hold in our hands. Lord, we're able to gather around it in a language that we understand. And by Your amazing mercy, many of us can read and see it. Father, thank You that that's true. Thank You, Father, that we can gather freely to talk about it. So few of our brothers and sisters across the world can do that. Thank You that we can gather in what is probably too comfortable of a place to do this together. Lord, You have been incredibly merciful to us that we gather as Your people around Your Word together is an amazing gift from you. So we're coming asking that you would help us steward this gift well this morning. Father, I'm praying for help as a preacher. I pray, Father, for clarity and conviction. I pray, Father, for empathy for those who are listening. And Lord, I pray that you would help me to fight the desire to entertain or the desire to be liked. Father, I pray for these hearers of Your Word, that You, Lord, would help them to be attentive and receptive. I pray, Father, that Your Word would fall on fertile ground, that, Lord, it would bear fruit in hearts, fruit that You would bring about for Your kingdom. Thank You for this chapter. It is so helpful. And so, God, would You let it be helpful to Your people this morning. We ask all these things to You, Father, through the name of Jesus, our brother, our Lord, praying, trusting that You will now bring it to us by Your Spirit. Amen. Well, let me begin with the words from C.S. Lewis. He writes this, Lose your life and you will save it. Submit to death. 
death of your ambitions and favorite wishes every day, and death to your whole body in the end. Submit with every fiber of your being, and you will find eternal life. Keep back nothing. Look for yourself, and you will find in the long run only hatred, loneliness, despair, rage, ruin, and decay. But look for Christ, and you will find Him. And with Him, everything else will be thrown in. Sounds incredibly radical, right? Ironically, those words are His final words in His book called Mere Christianity. And I think that that's a masterful way to end the book. I also find it very helpful. And you're going to see, I hope, that it fits very well in what's happening in Mark chapter 10. Here in Mark 10, Jesus, as He's getting very near the cross, gives us a glimpse at what Christian discipleship looks like. And you are going to see that radical living is the basic lot of the Christian life. We're going to read a lot of text together. We're going to do so quickly. So grab your Bibles, dig in, and here we go. Verse 1. And he left there, and he went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And the crowds gathered to him again. And again, as this was his custom, he taught them. So this is, remember, we talked about last time, this is what's called the Perean ministries up in the area of Perea. If you have Jerusalem here, you've got Galilee here, then you've got Perea over here. So he's on his way down to Jerusalem. Verse 2, And the Pharisees came up in order to test him and ask, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? So as we discussed last time, this is a loaded question. It's an intentionally loaded question. It is intended to get Jesus killed. Why? Because they ask it in the area of Perea. Perea was part of the area ruled by Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas had recently divorced his wife after looking at his half-brother's wife and finding her more attractive. He divorced his first wife. John the Baptist spoke out against what Herod did and John the Baptist was killed. The Pharisees want the same fate for Jesus. That's why they're asking the question. But there's more to it. Because Herod was not alone in what he did. Many men, many Jewish men, had divorced their wives so they could marry somebody else. While the passage certainly, that passage, and we did that last time together, it certainly teaches us about marriage and divorce, and it's helpful for that. I don't think that's the most important thing going on in that passage. The more I've looked at the passage, the more I looked at the chapter, I think it's about us learning to trust God with our desires. To see this, keep in mind that the chief reason that men were divorcing their wives was so that they could go indulge themselves with another woman without having to suffer the stigmatization of the culture for uh, uh, adultery. How do I know that? Well, consider how Jesus responds. Verse 3, He answered them, What did Moses command you? And they said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and send her away. Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of hearts, he wrote you this command. Last time we saw that the Pharisees were twisting the Scripture to make it sound like Moses permitted divorce. That was not true. 
Jesus responded by correcting their misuse of the Scriptures. But listen how He continues. He's going to go from divorce to the gift of marriage to the gift of sexual union inside of marriage. Verse 6. But from the beginning of creation, this is Jesus speaking, God made them male and female. Therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let no man separate. Now just track with me these amazing claims of Jesus. Let's enumerate them together. Claim one. God made two in only two genders, male and female. Marriage is made to be between one man and one woman. This is just straight from what Jesus is saying. In this context, and only in this context, is the gift of sexual intimacy to be enjoyed. Four, marriage is to be for life. Now here's what I want you to notice. Not a single one of these claims is, enjoys endorsement from our secular world. Not one single claim. They will deny all four. I say that to say, if you're trying to make your life, Christian, palatable with the secular world around you, stop. You can't do it. Jesus enumerates four claims that they deny, and that's just the side point of what He's after. Jesus responds by describing the single context that God gives for sex. Some may respond, but this seems to be more about marriage than it is about sex. Well, notice that in the biblical worldview, that's like saying this is not about flames, it's about fires. (laughs) That is... Marriage goes with sex, according to the biblical worldview, like fires goes with flame. To have one is to have the other. One of the saddest lies of our pagan culture is the lie, is the pretend, is to pretend that you can have sex without marriage. It's not true. All you get is a consummated union with no wedding. No public vows, no commitment, and no formal divorce. Jesus is laying out the Christian sexual ethic. Sex makes much of marriage, and marriage makes much of Christ's unending commitment to this church. It is a hard teaching to swallow today. It was a hard teaching to swallow then. Follow with me. Verse 10. And in the house, the disciples ask Him about the matter again. They're very intrigued. And He said to them, Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. So after the crowds disperse, they go on. They're asking Jesus about what's going on as they begin to think of how radical this is. Jesus tells them it's radical. In fact, in Matthew 19, we get more of that. Jesus actually goes on in Matthew 19 and says, look, this is so radical that there are going to be those who are going to actually make themselves eunuchs for the kingdom's sake. That is, they will commit to lifelong celibacy in order to fulfill the requirements of the kingdom. 
I think this passage calls us to fight the desire to enjoy something good outside of the boundaries God has set for it. Let me say it again. It calls us to fight the temptation to enjoy something good outside of the bounds that God created for it. God created sexual intimacy as a wonderful piece of His creation, but to only be enjoyed within the boundaries He set. Herod saw his half-brother's wife. He wanted to enjoy her. He thought he could trick the system by divorcing his wife. Jesus comes back and says, you have committed no less adultery now. Verse 13, And they were bringing children to Him that He might touch them. And the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw it, He was indignant and said to them, Let the children come to Me. Do not hinder them. For to such belongs the kingdom of God. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child shall not enter it. And He took them in His arms and He blessed them, laying His hands on them. This story intentionally comes on the heels of the passage right before it. There's a deep connection. The children are coming to see Jesus and disciples were shooing them away. And that would not have been unheard of at all. That's the way the culture worked. Jesus rebukes them for it. That's the unheard of part. That would have been odd. He says that if someone does not receive the kingdom of God like a child, you can't enter the kingdom of God. Well, what does this passage have to do with the last passage? One of the hallmark traits of a child is their complete trust in their parents to provide for their needs. When children get hungry, they do not hunt for food. Instead, they hunt a parent. As a mother of two small children, I think my wife must think her name is Snack. Because I know she hears the word Snack more than she hears her own name in any given day. Followers of Jesus give God glory when they willingly choose to enjoy the good things He has given only within the boundaries He has set for them. God has given us food and drink. And they're wonderful gifts. But for each one of these, the Bible warns about the dangers of overindulgence. God has given us the incredible gift of sleep and it's a great gift. And He sets boundaries about how how to avoid too much of it. Every attempt to enjoy something good given by God outside the boundaries He gave it is an act of rebellion against our Father. Men, the problem with you looking at the naked woman on your computer screen who's not your wife is that you're indulging your appetite. It's not just that you're indulging your appetite in a forbidden way. It's that you're telling your Father you don't believe He will feed you. Women, The problem with losing yourself in that soft pornographic romance novel is not that you're exciting a romantic spirit in an unhelpful way. It's you're telling your father you don't believe he can quench your thirst. Friends, the problem with crawling in bed together prior to marriage is not just that you're not saving yourself. It's that you're telling your father he cannot provide for your current needs. Matthew chapter 6. 
off the tongue of Jesus. Do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat? Or what shall we drink? Or what shall we wear? Seek ye first the kingdom of God and His righteousness. And all these things, they'll be added. Verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, so what must I do to inherit eternal life? So you got a man, he's on his journey, comes up before him, kneels down, says, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, Matthew and Luke give us a little bit more background on him. From Matthew, we learn that he is rich. From Luke, we learn that he's a ruler. Biblical scholars call him the rich young ruler. So that might be helpful to you from now on. Um, These are also the folks that told us to call the covenant of Noah the Noahic covenant. Because otherwise we'd have no idea what they're talking about. But anyway, alright. This young man comes and kneels before Jesus and sincerely wants to know, what do I have to do to be saved? How do I have... What is it that I need to do to be protected from this moment right now all the way through eternity? Verse 18. Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and your mother. Now, it actually would have been quite uncommon for a Jewish uh, uh, person to refer to a Jewish teacher as a good teacher, precisely for the reason that Jesus pointed out, only God Himself is good. Ironically, the man appropriately called Jesus uh, good and, and addressed Him as God, even though He didn't seem to knowingly do so. But then Jesus turns the issue on this man's goodness. Because this is the only thing that keeps someone from eternal life. Nobody enters the kingdom of heaven unless they are good. That is basic Christian doctrine. Anyone lacking complete goodness does not get into the kingdom of God. It's basic 101 doctrine. Verse 20, he said to him, Teacher, all these I've kept from my youth. Jesus looked at him, loved him, and said to him, You lack one thing. Go sell all that you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. And come follow me. Disheartened by the same, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. I honestly think this man gave a very genuine response. I don't think he was being a hypocrite. I honestly think he is saying, I've kept all those commandments. Now, one of the reasons I think that is because it says there that Jesus loves them, and Jesus does not usually respond lovingly to hypocrites. While the man was not being hypocritical, he was deceived. He had not kept all these commandments. He is not good, and therefore he will not get to heaven on his own goodness. So if this man is not getting into heaven... It will not be on account, if the man is going to get into heaven, I'm sorry, it will be not on account of his own goodness. He needs a goodness outside of himself. And Jesus tells the man, you go sell everything you have 
and you follow me. Now track this. We may be tempted to hear Jesus saying that by selling everything, this man gains eternal life. But that's not what he says. Furthermore, the problem with that logic is not that it's too radical. It's actually that it's not radical enough. Even if the man goes and sells everything, it does not make him good. He needs a goodness outside of himself. How does he get that? He follows Jesus. This helps us understand discipleship. Selling all his stuff was merely the first step in following Jesus. Recall when Pastor Mark in uh, in the end of December walked us through Mark 8. He hit this verse and, and did a great job of spending time on it. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. Selling his stuff would be the outward evidence of an inward allegiance. It would be evidence that he trusts in Jesus and in Jesus alone for his protection. The man went away disheartened because he could not let go of his stuff. He was hoping from the encounter with Jesus to add to his life an insurance policy of self-protection. Ironically, he actually walks away less secure and less stable than when he arrived at the feet of Jesus. Verse 23, Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God. Now people hear this. I don't care what your financial situation is. Just from the fact of where you live, you are in the top 10% of the wealthiest people in the world. So when he says here, it's going to be hard for people who have wealth to enter the kingdom of heaven, don't think about Donald Trump. Think about us. We have wealth. So let me read again. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How difficult will it be for those who have wealth to enter the kingdom of God? And the disciples were amazed at his words. And Jesus said to them again, Now notice, twice now they're amazed. They're blown away by this. Jesus said to them, Children, how difficult is it, is it to enter the kingdom of God? It's easier for a camel to get through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. And they were exceedingly astonished. And they said to them, Well, then who can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, With man it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible with God. I've never tried to put a camel through the eye of a needle, but I have once or twice tried thread, and every time blood ensued. (laughs) You don't get a camel through the eye of a needle. It's impossible. Only God saves. Men cannot save themselves. Verse 28, Peter began to say to him, (laughs) I just love Peter. Peter is just like the guy that is hanging around saying everything you know later we would want to say, right? You just love him. Like, thank you. Thank you. You fool. I'm a fool. Thank you. Peter began to say to him, well, see, (laughs) 
I just love it. We've left everything and followed you. I, I don't have anything. I'm not a camel. Okay, I'm a really skinny camel. Jesus said, truly, I say to you, there is no one who has left house or brothers or sisters or mother or father or children or lands for my sake and for the gospel who will not receive a hundredfold now in this time houses and brothers and sisters and mothers and children and lands with persecutions and in the age to come eternal life. But many who are first, they will be last and the last will be first. Jesus assures His disciples that while they might feel like they're sacrificing, they are not, nor will they ever ultimately sacrifice. They will get back far, far more than they've ever given up. But let me remind you again, the list that Jesus listed out of the things that His followers can and will lose. Houses, siblings, Parents, children, and land. Genuine discipleship is costly. I think this passage calls us to fight the temptation to be assured of our present safety, security, and comfort. The young man who came to Jesus wanted exactly that. He wanted more safety and more security. And Jesus explained to him that followers of Jesus bank all their hope for safety and security on the promises of Jesus, not on what they can see, feel, and experience in the right here and the right now. Folks, every single one of us stands in great danger of this temptation. While Jesus promises full security of His people, He does not allow us to see the how in terms of how it will come about. You are a follower. I am a follower. We are not the leader. So how does this eat at our souls? I think it eats at our souls because some of us lay awake at night not sure exactly how we're going to provide or not be able to provide for our families. It keeps us, it eats at our souls by keeping us awake wondering about our own health or the health of our family members. We become paralyzed with fear that we're going to make the wrong decisions for our children. Some of us are trying to experience every great moment of life now, afraid we'll miss out. Some of us cannot find rest for our minds, so we turn to substances to help us escape and get freedom. Followers of Jesus are not reckless, disengaged, or anxious. Followers of Jesus do not know the how of their safety. Let me say it again. Followers of Jesus do not know the how of their safety, but they are entirely, utterly convinced of the who. Verse 32. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we're going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death, and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him, spit on him, flog him, 
and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. Like the children offered a positive example of how to fight the temptation to not trust trust our Father to feed us. Jesus Himself now offers a positive example of how to fight the temptation to not trust our Father to protect us. In this now final and third prediction of His suffering, Jesus emphasizes the details of how He will be handed over to the authorities. Far from wanting to see the how He will be protected, Jesus willingly submits His life into the hands of thugs, fully convinced that God will rescue Him. Unlike the rich young ruler who could not trust the Father enough to give His possessions to the poor, Jesus fully trusts His Father and gives His life to His enemies. And unlike the rich young ruler who lost his life while seeking to save it, Jesus, our brother, gained life for us by his willingness to lose his own. About 18 months ago, in Iraq, ISIS militants came to an Anglican church where four Christian teenagers were present. They demanded that they state their allegiance to the prophet Muhammad. The four teenagers responded, No, we love Yeshua, Jesus. We've always followed Yeshua. The militants demanded again, You will say this. They refused. And they told him, Yeshua has always been with us. They were all four brutally murdered. These four teenagers face the same choices of the rich young ruler. They chose to give it up, all of it, to follow Jesus. They trusted their Father to protect them. Verse 35. In James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. James and John asked to be seated at the left, of G- one to be at the left and one to be at the right. In Jewish custom, the honor was to be seated in the center, and then the honor kind of goes out from there. They're thinking, when we get to, to Jerusalem, Jesus is going to bring this whole thing to fruition. And they were making some plans of where they were going to sit when this thing came to pass in Jerusalem. They actually thought they were giving Jesus some honor. I mean, He is going to get the center seat. They're just wanting to know, could they be on the left and on the right? Their desire was clear. They wanted a place of honor. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, You do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, Oh, we're able. And Jesus said to them, The cup that I drink, you will drink. And both of them did. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left, it's not mine to grant. It's for those for whom it's been prepared. Jesus responds, 
You don't want me to grant the request that you just asked for. Why? Because the crown I'm getting ready to wear, you don't want to wear. And the throne I'm getting ready to sit on, you do not want to sit on. And even so, it's not my request to grant. I don't write the story. I submit to the Father who has written the story. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, so there's ten others, <laughs> they began to be indignant at James and John. Jesus called them to him and said to him, Then you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you. Whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve, and to give His life as a ransom for many. So not surprisingly, the other ten heard about this, and they're not happy. (laughs) Now, they're not upset that James and John were seeking honor. They were upset that James and John's seeking honor might cost them some honor. And Jesus corrects their kingdom calculus. He explains that in His kingdom, greatness is always found in serving. This passage calls us to fight the temptation to be adored and honored. If you want to be somebody in the kingdom of God, become a nobody. Don't consider how you can be honored, but consider how you can serve. One of the surest signs of a healthy church is the number of folks seeking service short of recognition. One of the surest signs of an unhealthy church is the number of folks seeking recognition short of service. Jesus here pits the calculus of the world and the ways of the Gentile against the kingdom calculus. I have no patience with people trying to run churches like secular corporations. We have fundamentally different laws of nature. There is one way you walk on the moon and there is another way you walk on earth. If our shepherd rode a colt to a cross, how in the world is an under-shepherd going to take a private jet to a packed coliseum? It's the wrong calculus. Verse 46, And they came to Jericho. And as he was leaving Jericho with his disciples a great, and a great crowd, Bartimaeus, a blind beggar, the son of Timaeus, was sitting by the roadside. And when he heard it, that it was Jesus of Nazareth, he began to cry out and say, Jesus, Son of David, have mercy on me. And many rebuked him, telling him to be silent. But he cried all the more, Son of David, have mercy on me. And Jesus stopped and said, Call him. And they called him. And the bond man saying to him, Take heart, get up, he's calling you. Throwing off his cloak, he came up. He sprang up and came to Jesus. So the children set an example for us of what it looks like to trust God to feed us. Jesus serves as an example of what it looks like to trust the Father to protect us. Bartimaeus now serves as a counterexample of what of wanting honor. 
How? He's a blind beggar sitting on the roadside. He is a nobody. He calls out to Jesus, the son of David, to have mercy on him. He completely acknowledges that Jesus is the Messiah and his need for help. Everybody tells him to be quiet. But notice, the opinions of men mean little to Bartimaeus. He keeps calling out. Jesus hears him, calls him, and he runs to Jesus. Verse 51, Jesus said to him, What do you want me to do for you? Now, why is that significant? Because that is the exact same question he just asked James and John. These stories are carefully connected. And the blind man said to him, Rabbi, let me recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, Go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed on the way. James and John answered the same question by saying that they wanted to be seen by others. Bartimaeus just wants to see. On his own, he is blind, confused, and helpless. If Jesus will have mercy on him, then he has hope. Jesus heals him. And what does the Bible say he does? He follows. Folks, this is a beautiful chapter. But if you honestly stop and think about the temptations that it is calling us to fight, it is incredibly burdensome on its own. Let's just look at those together. Fight the temptation to enjoy good things outside their God-ordained boundaries. Sitting in a church pew? That's an easy one. That can eat and gnaw at your soul. Fight the temptation to be assured of present safety, security, and comfort. I am telling you, it eats at us. Fight the temptation to seek to be honored. I don't know how much you have to deal with this one. I struggle with this one mightily. So what do you do? How do we walk away and not go, come on? Well, let me tell you, the feeling that you feel, if you're feeling the way I hope you're feeling, is exactly how the disciples felt throughout this chapter. It's as if they looked at Jesus multiple times and said, you're kidding, right? Oh, folks, there is some really, really good news. Hebrews Chapter 4, verse 15. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. If you remember, Jesus' ministry began where? In the wilderness. How? Being tempted by Satan. Look with me at Matthew chapter 4, verse 1. I want you to see, this is the account of Jesus being tempted in the wilderness. Hopefully you'll see some parallels. Jesus was led up by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And after fasting 40 days and 40 nights, He was hungry. 
The tempter came to him. And by the way, you talk about an understatement in the Scriptures. And after not eating for 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. If I go 40 hours without food, it's scary, right? And the tempter came and said to him, If you are the Son of God, command these stones to become loaves of bread. But he answered, It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. There's nothing wrong with bread. It's a good thing. And there's certainly nothing wrong with a very hungry man eating. But seeking to demand that, stone, that God turn stones into bread, that's out of bounds. Our Lord was tempted to enjoy a good thing outside the boundaries God set. He overcame this temptation, how? By exercising a childlike trust, refusing to hunt for food, and trusting that His perfectly good Father can and will feed Him. Verse 5, Then the devil took Him to the holy city and set Him on the pinnacle of the temple. And he said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down, for it's written, He will command His angels concerning you. And on the hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. Jesus said to him, Again, it's written, You shall not put the Lord your God to the test. So what's wrong with this? I mean, Jesus, just show Satan who you are. Make him be quiet. The Scriptures Satan quoted, those are legit. God will certainly save you. And I mean, think about it. This is going to provide you and a lot of your followers comfort throughout the next few years as you know for sure now that God will not let you perish. Jesus was being tempted to seek assurance of His presence, security, safety, and comfort. And He responds that He does not need to test His Father. In the same manner He marches towards Jerusalem in Mark chapter 10 to suffer, Jesus in the wilderness trusts that His Father can and will protect Him. He does not need to see the how. Verse 8, Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, All these things I will give to you if you fall down and worship me. And Jesus said, Be gone, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and Him only shall you serve. The devil left, and behold, angels came and ministered to him. Jesus is tempted here to embrace the immediate worldwide honor and adoration of every living person. He fights this temptation by reminding Satan that he would never look to Satan for worship. Like Bartimaeus, he has been called to see and behold God and follow Him only. The devil left and the good, perfect Father took care of His Son. Hebrews 4, 15 and 16. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. 16. Let us then with confidence 
draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace in the time of need. Brothers and sisters, we will not overcome temptation by a strong will or an illuminated conscience. We will overcome temptation when we look to heaven and we see our oldest brother sitting at the right hand of the Father. When we realize that we have already been tempted in the wilderness when He was tempted. His righteousness is our righteousness. His victory in the wilderness is our strength in temptation. Good old Baptist, old English Baptist by the name of John Bunyan wrote this. Listen closely. It's beautiful. One day, as I was passing in the field, this idea fell on my soul. Your righteousness is in heaven. And I saw with the eyes of my soul, Jesus Christ at God's right hand. There, I say, was my righteousness. So that wherever I was, or whatever I was doing, God could not say of me, He lacks righteousness. For my righteousness is right before Him. I also saw, it was not my good frame of heart that made my righteousness better, or my bad frame that made my righteousness worse. For my righteousness was Jesus Christ Himself, the same yesterday, today, and forever. Oh, did my chains fall off my legs? Indeed. I was loosed from my afflictions and my irons. My temptations, they fled away. Brothers and sisters, the great joy of the kingdom is that God the Father gave His Son to march to Jerusalem and pay our debt on a cross. And when He rose three days later, our victory over temptation rose with Him. We do not have to live like this world tells us. We can live with the righteousness that has already been bought and stands pleading on our behalf with the Father in heaven. Let's pray.